I'm Joshua Best. I'm Jacob King. And this is Somebody Somebody Else's else's Favorite Songs. Casual popular music discussions spanning the past 70 years. We talk about the music you love. And the music you should know that you may not. You are listening to episode 28, A Few of Our Favorite Things. I just try and think of nice things. What kind of things? Oh, well, let me see. Nice things. Daffodils. Green meadows. Skies full of stars. Raindrops on roses. And whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels Doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzels with noodles Wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings These are a few of my favorite things Girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes Snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes Silver-white winters that melt into springs These are a few of my favorite things When the dog bites, when the bee stings When I'm feeling sad I simply remember my favorite things And then I don't feel so bad Music! That sounds like, it's kind of like, pretend it's like the early 90s, right? Yeah, it probably was. That looks like their debut album. Uh, Outcast doing a version of My Favorite Things. It's almost <laughs> as if that was written for some sort of 90s steampunk version of Sound of Music, the video game. Yeah. And that theme plays as they are trying to escape from Austria, literally running from Nazis. <laughs> So that's what I envision when I <laughs> steampunk days of future past sound of music, where Julie Andrews has a bandolier and a and a, and a machine gun. <laughs> I was recording all that. Oh, great! 
That may require selective editing. It may. Well. Hello again. Hello again. You have just heard the Julie Andrews version of My Favorite Things, followed by Tony Bennett, followed by Outcast. <laughs> We'll have to include that as a little medley. These are a few of our these are a few of our favorite versions. <laughs> these are a few of my favorite versions of my favorite things. Which so, brings us to the topic which has nothing to do with my favorite things. Not the song or not the general association. I think last year we did a Christmas episode we and did. Jacob did select a very fine a John, uh, Coltrane. John Coltrane version of, of sure my did. favorite things. And if memory serves, we did discuss how technically there's not really anything Christmassy about the song, but it is always included and That's considered, true. you know, as as a holiday song. Although I'm going to take some issue. It well, wait. It does mention Christmas, doesn't it? No, it it says nothing about Christmas. I thought it did. No, it talks about um, silver white winters that melt into springs, but. It, it, there's just it's just this list of frankly weird stuff and these were simpler times <laughs> and i guess you can get by with whiskers on kittens and mittens and brown packages and all that but one of the things listed in the lyrics is doorbells <laughs> oh doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles whose favorite thing is a doorbell so, nobody likes the doorbell <laughs> that was rogers and hammerstein they were reaching a little bit or hammerstein Reaching a little bit, weren't they? Let's see. What are we going to list here? Uh, Cream-colored ponies. Oh, yeah. People love those. Uh, Crisp apple strudels. Oh, yes. Wonderful. Well, I mean, it is Austria. Uh, Okay, doorbells. Oh, yeah. Doorbells. We love those. Well, because it rhymes (laughs) kind of with sleigh bells. I don't know. Doorbells and sleigh bells. But sleigh bells links us to the last episode. Oh, yes, it does. (laughs) Which I might might have to to say was pretty good. And I... Want to say thanks for holding down the Ford while I was busy taking final exams. Yes, and thanks to Joel for joining me. We had a good time with that on our second venture into daddy-daughter land, as, <laughs> as, as it were, as he calls it, our daddy-daughter episodes. But uh, it's it, it's good to to be back in less studio in our normal arrangement. Yes, indeed. With Jacob across from me. All is right with the world as we enter the holiday season. And because of the holiday season, we decided to do an episode that really had nothing to do with the holidays. Of course, of course. But we'll sort of give it a loose link because we've started with my favorite things, and that is the theme for this episode. If you'll have it. We would like to share, musically, a few of our favorite things. Maybe. Our favorite things of right now, our favorite things in general. Who knows the direction? That's really all All we said was, let's use a few of my favorite things to pick some songs. And I have no idea how Jacob is going to go with this. And I have no idea where Josh is going to go. In fact, I feel like it may turn into sort of a, a, a I don't know, 10 episodes ago or so, we did songs from Recently Added, which was a pretty cool little episode. And it I was. Wonder, it's one of my favorites, actually. I wonder if we're going to delve into that territory. Um, mine will not at all be oh, like okay. that. Will yours? Um, a touch. Well, that's good because I like that concept. But anyway, here for your holiday listening pleasure is not more Christmas songs, but a few of our favorite things. Maybe. We'll Maybe. see. We'll see. <laughs> okay. Well, that's the theme of the episode. Yes, it is. But you know, who? 
how often do we set a theme for the episode and then swiftly go off the rails? Mm, well, that's true. We do because spend a lot of we, time off the rails. We rarely make very stringent rules for what we're going to talk about. And it, cause part of the fun is seeing what happens. Yeah. And this is about as grab baggy as you get. <laughs> yeah, it really is. So as you were trying to say, this is a bonus episode because Josh and Joel gave y'all an episode last week, but we will be unable to, uh, to, to, uh, partake in our usual duties until after the first of the year. And so I'm guessing that you will have another episode for you. Episode 29, the second week of January, perhaps. That's probably going to be about right because not only will we not be able to, well, this one will take the place of what should have come out on the 27th. Correct. So our, we'll be around for a regular release on time on January 10th. Okay. That sounds good. Okay. So then my favorite things. So now, a few of our favorite things, maybe. Maybe. So then, would you like to go first? I don't care. Whatever you want. Please go ahead. Okay. So, a few of my favorite things. The first thing that I thought about is something that I have mentioned on the show before, but we've never delved into very far. And it is my favorite sound. Oh, and when is it, it comes is it to the, music... Is it the Wilhelm scream? It, yes, it's the Wilhelm scream. Okay, Insert here, here. Here it is. You've all okay. heard that in every movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite scream. Oh. But not one, but not one of my favorite scream. things. <laughs> Actually, maybe my favorite scream is John Lennon Revolution. But whatever, you know. Or, who knows? That's a great scream. That is. I, I'm sorry, please. <laughs> okay. Your favorite sound. My favorite sound in all of music, is made by a specific guitar. Ah, yes. And that guitar is the Rickenbacker guitar. And that guitar has a unique and distinct tone and sound that really you cannot replicate with any other type of guitar. Now, a lot of guitars have certain tonal qualities that are unique to them, but I would say none is as easily identifiable and as as singular as the sound of the Rickenbacker. Uh, is this the, are you specifically talking about the 12 string or the 6 string or just in general? In general, the tonal qualities. They do have similar. They are similar. Yeah. Um, but Rickenbacker mm-hmm. is just in a, in a league of its own as far as the sound any way you go. It, it can be construed as a one-trick pony, but it does that one trick really, really it does. well. It does. Such that even if you are not used to trying to identify certain kinds of guitars, and again, you if you have experience with them, especially if you're a gearhead like my esteemed co-host and <laughs> my esteemed substitute co-host from last time. Indeed. Um, even if you're just more of a casual listener, once you know what the Rick sounds like, you'll be able to hear it. And you'll be able to recognize it. It is generally described as being jangly. That's one of the terms that is of usually course, used. That's the main thing. The jangly. Or chiming. Uh, or chiming. So to give you an idea, uh, well-known and identifiable artists that have used this particular guitar um, are George Harrison during A Hard Day's Night. Uh, used the 12-string Rickenbacker that inspired 
then Jim McGuinn, who later became Roger McGuinn, who used birds. it as the main instrument uh, for the sound of the birds. Any bird song, turn, 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 uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, right. that is the sound of the Rickenbacker. Tom Petty and Mike Campbell used used Definitely. it extensively. Six and twelve. Um, early Who songs, Pete Town, Townsend played uh, the Rickenbacker a lot. Uh, there are plenty of others, but I just wanted to pick a song that displays the Rickenbacker so that you can clearly hear it. It starts off from the very beginning and contributes to a really nice retro sound that kicks off one of my favorite albums of all time. This is Hard Candy by Ooh, Counting Crows. Very good. Just the same hard candy, y'all. 
that is from 2001. Is that right? I believe so. 2001. Or two. Uh, 2002. From 2002's Hard Candy, the fourth studio album by Counting Crows. And the sound you hear again from the very beginning is the Rickenbacker guitar. <clears throat> and every time I hear it, anybody who uses it, I could have picked any of dozens of songs. <clears throat> it always makes me feel happy. It, That's, yeah, I was going to say the same thing. This is a really strong start to the album. Mm-hmm. It, it leads off with the 12 string and everything. But the song in general, has, regardless of the subject matter, it has a really happy and hopeful and positive feeling to it. And I think it's underscored by the 12 string for sure. No, it is. <clears throat> it is. And, and, and the piano and the vocals, the backing. It's it's not really a positive song. Yeah. Adam Duritz does not write positive songs. <laughs> but the feel of the but of the music to me. It's uplifting. Yes. Is 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 I agree a hundred percent. It makes me feel so good. And a big part of that is that Rickenbacker. I particularly like towards the end of the, the second verse when he sings, You're spinning in the grips of someone, and the Rickenbacker goes, mm-hmm. does a little run up like that, which is something people do with a Rickenbacker a lot. I think it's a minor run, too. <clears throat> it, it just, that is something that sounds so good on that instrument and adds so much texture and interest to to, to the guitar part. You know, I'm not going to try to delve into all the meanings of this song. There's clearly complexities about a girl and some memories and issues and some things about his mother and but it's just the same hard candy you're remembering again. Mm-hmm. I It's one of those songs that I think is clearly brilliant, even though I'm not sure I fully grasp it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I really get it either. But it's enough for me to enjoy the music. Yeah. You know, and that's, it comes first for me a lot, but it's a great, it's it's a great piece of music, shall we say, like the music of it. Yeah, I think the the one um, set of lyrics that probably would give you the best perspective into what he's saying, and they're very typical of him, is near the end when he says, you send your lover off to China, then you wait for her to call. You put your girl up on a pedestal, and you wait then you wait for fall. her to fall. Th- this is the duality of, okay, you send somebody away, but then you're sitting and waiting for them to call back. Or you elevate somebody with the expectation that they'll fall. It's just this, this um, the duality of... Of, of frankly the messages of of much of his songs there is a love hate relationship with himself and that comes through all the time and yet again you have this wonderful sound that makes this one of my favorite songs by this band on what is pretty certainly my favorite album by counting crows i i mean i i believe that our esteemed guest host Joel, he would say this is a top, top, top album for him in general. Yes. Wouldn't you say that? I believe uh, yeah, he has. I think, I think so. And it's going to show up pretty early on my list. I mean, I would say August and Everything After is their best album, quote unquote. It's awesome. Because of what it was, and, and it truly is great. But then they, and the next two albums are great too. Um, Recovering the Satellites and... This Desert Life. This Desert Life. 
But those are both good too. They are. But some of the reviews at the time said that those albums tend to meander at times. Um, I, it doesn't really bother me, but I would agree with that. This is a much tighter, it's focused, isn't it? Focused set of of songs, and I love on all packaged on wiki. in a nice tin as yes, well. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I love on the the Wikipedia where it tells what the genre is. It what says, does it say? Well, it says indie rock and jangle pop. <laughs> well, jangle pop is exactly what you get from a Rick and Backer guitar. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, don't think I I've love ever it. Heard that term before? It's it's one of uh, the sound of the Rick and Backer guitar was the first thing I thought of to say that's one of my favorite things. And whether the Birds or Tom Petty or George Harrison or um, Counting Crows or our our beloved Jackie Green, who will use it uh, with some regularity, any of those doesn't matter. It's a great sound, and I love it. And keep an eye out or an ear out for it, and you'll hear it from time to you time. You will take that, take the sound of it that you heard at the beginning of this song, and memorize it because it will come up again. Especially if you listen to us, I'm certain it'll yes, come up again. Yes, yes, yes. So my my first favorite thing, the Rickenbacker guitar. Oh, that's very good, and you're you're taking it in a in a pretty good direction. I can see here. So let me give you the first of the quote, quote unquote, my favorite things, and this is going to be in no particular order. The first, the first one is a pretty cool song. tells a tells a good story, and if you're from Longview and you've heard of this cover band called Dag Nabbit that my mom really loves, <laughs> I've seen them a few times. They're really they're quite a good band, um, actually. But they play this song a lot. It's from 1988, and the son of this artist uh, was featured very early on in our series, one of my very favorites, the late Justin Towns Earl. And so his father, Steve Earl, is a, a, a quite a revered songwriter and musician in his own right. I'm going to play you the title track from his 1988 album, Copperhead Road. Well, my name's John Lee Pettimore Same as my you hardly ever saw granddaddy down here They only come a town about twice a year You buy a hundred pounds of yeast and some copper line Everybody knew that it made me shine Copperhead Road Mountain Daddy ran a whiskey in a big black dodge Bought it at an auction at the Mason's Lodge Shots of candy share painted on the side Shot a coat of primer and looked inside. Well, him and my uncle tore that engine down. I still remember that rumbling sound. And then the sheriff came around in the middle of the 
down to Knoxville with a weekly load. You can smell a whiskey burning down Copperhead Road. Heck yeah. That's a cool one. That's in, man, that is such a great, that's such an awesome story. It's a really good, I mean, it's just a great song that tells a great story. And we hadn't really talked about Steve Earle. I know we hadn't had a song from him, but right. this this album is pretty good. And it's kind of funny because when the Rolling Stone magazine reviewed the album, they thought that the style of it, the genre, should be called Power Twang. Power Twang. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the detail in the lyrics, you know, going down to so much like talking about exactly how his dad got the decommissioned police car and what color they painted it and, you know, talking about tearing the engine down, they're going to use it for run and shine and stuff. And then he talks about volunteering for the army they draft the white trash first around here anyway. (laughs) Comes back from Vietnam with a brand new plan. He's going to take the seed from Colombia and Mexico and planted up the holler down Copperhead Road. <laughs> so he decided to to um, take his uh, daddy and granddaddy's business and improve it a little bit, and going to grow some marijuana up there on Copperhead Road instead of running that shine. Now the DEA's got a chopper in the air. I wake up screaming like I'm back over there. Like just There's so many, <laughs> you know, I didn't actually catch some of this stuff before I read the lyrics. And yeah... It, this reminds me a lot of of on Charlie Robinson's album. I think it's Step Right Up. He has that song, Desperate Times. Yeah. That This song, or that song reminds me a lot, of, a lot of this song. A lot like this song. So, the the sort of, sort of the crux of my, of my list is going to be kind of getting some new people on here, uh, with one notable exception. So, the first of, quote unquote, my favorite things. Copperhead Road. By Steve Earle. <laughs> you know, uh, this this song got some some mainstream interest. I think it did. Yes, back in '88, um, and is is his most well known song. It reached um, number ten. Yeah, on the mainstream rock chart. Yeah, that's that's uh, 
uh, that's quite an accomplishment. I have not listened to a lot of Steve Earle, but he's he's one of those, you know, in 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 the the genre that that ended up being Texas country and Americana and mm-hmm. everything. He's he's among the grandfathers. You know, I, I generally think of Robert Earl Keene as the grandfather, but but guys like Steve Earle were doing it a little bit before then, even and he, and he is one of those that bridges the gap between outlaw country and and the Texas country scene, Absolutely. kind of as we discussed in our previous episode on on that. But I think I'm particularly interested in the fact that he is the Elizabeth Taylor of country musicians. I think I see where you're going with this. Yes. He, He's been married seven times. Married, that's right. And yeah. married the same woman twice. Yeah. <laughs> so just like Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> so if you've ever wondered what Steve Earle and Elizabeth Taylor have in common, that's it. And you can only get content like that on somebody else's favorite songs. <laughs> <laughs> that's the uh, marginal content that differentiates us from the from That's the, right. We, we stand from apart. The next guys. We stand apart. <laughs> All right. That's an interesting, uh, interesting little story there. Great, great selection, uh, Jacob, for, for all, your first favorite thing. All will be revealed. All will be revealed. So please, your second choice. So many of you know that I am a bass player. I prefer to play bass. I love to play the bass. I I think the the bass is in some ways, the most critical instrument in uh, any band. You would say that, though. Uh, well, of course I would, <laughs> but I happen to think it's true. <laughs> you would say that. <laughs> so the bass guitar is a usually four-stringed guitar that plays low foundational notes that form along with the drummer, the rhythm section of a band. And there are a wide variety of, of styles of playing bass. And different genres have different um, ways that the bass is used and can provide very much the feel of the song. But I would like to, as part of this episode, point out to you my favorite bass performance in a song ever. Ooh, and I, I want to take a guess. Okay, so, but please go ahead. Okay, I'll, I'll let you take a guess. I want to give one background before you hear it. That when the bass player laid this part down, it was his first run through at what he would play, and he claimed that he did this playing as a joke. And they loved it so much, they kept it in. You will not have to strain to hear the bass. It is the lead instrument in the song. You know the song I'm talking about? I'm pretty sure it's going to be Rain by the Beatles. It is not! <laughs> well, dang. A great bass selection. But it, it pretty much encapsulates everything you described. That's very interesting. The bass that's, is very loud in that song. Yes, it too. is very loud. Um but in this song, it is truly the lead instrument. Oh, and oh, you have a second guess. Is it going to be John Entwistle? It will be John okay. Entwistle. Thunderfingers, the Ox from <laughs> The Who, my favorite bass player ever. After the overture at the beginning of Quadrophenia called "I Am the Sea," it goes great. Uh, it goes directly into this powerhouse performance. 
I think, the greatest recorded bass in music history. This is The Real Me. just wild you know <laughs> he's um roger daltrey singing can you see the real me but you won't even be able to hear the real me because you've got so much bass going on in there so pete is that basically is just, just strumming chords and they've of course got the horns but the stars of the show are the bass and of course keith moon's drumming i've talked about how much i love the who before this performance on bass comes up on lists a lot as one of the great performances ever um i am just air basing like crazy while I'm listening you to were, it. You were, you were. Every note you were playing. I, I know I know what they sound like, but I would never be able to play them if I tried for a million years. Yeah. <laughs> I I had to admit to Josh, you know, I'm not a completist, a who completist. I don't know if I've heard that song or if I have, I've forgotten, but that is just mind-blowing bass and drum work there. 
So this album, Quadrophenia, um, which I would I would probably say is their second best album, is the second rock opera that The Who recorded, uh, Tommy being the more famous one, mm-hmm. <clears throat> about a deaf, dumb, and blind kid who could sure play a mean pinball. Right. But this is about a kid who has four personalities, and uh, he's a quadrophenic, and each member of the band represents one facet of his personality, and they each have a a theme <clears throat> that <clears throat> is represented by a certain song, and those themes crop up in the instrumental overtures and in different songs throughout the work, and it, it's, it's, it is a masterful, masterful... I, I, Tommy I sh- is more famous. I should this go back and listen album. to it. Th- this is a better album. And, and the way Pete Townsend's uh, genius is on, on full display with Quadrophenia. And this is, again, there's an overture before this, but this is the first song proper on the album. And you're off and running with, uh, particularly during the bridge of that song, where it's just the drums and the singing and then the bass fills. Like I said, the bass is the lead instrument. It really is. And you just don't hear much like uh, much like that uh, again sometimes the over the top out of controlness of of their sound is a little much for people and i wouldn't want to listen to it exclusively but there is just something about those four guys that i just i, I think it's wonderful and this is a great album check it out it's a double album it is well worth your time, and once you kind of get familiar with it and start hearing how the themes run through it, it's brilliant. But that is my second favorite thing, it's, John Entwistle's bass playing on The Real Me. <laughs> I was just going to say, we've we've had, what song did we feature from The Who? Well, we've, we've mm. had Bob O'Reilly on, and we've had a second or third we've one, We've had too. Bob O'Reilly on. I want to say we played Pinball Wizard at one time. I, well, I guess thinking about Bob O'Reilly... Just the way that we hear, um, we hear Keith Moon's drumming there and mm-hmm. here. The way that it's just—it seems like it's more feels than timekeeping a little bit, yes. and it's a little crazy. Yes. But then you get the same thing with Entwistle here as well. Yes. It's like both of them are not really keeping time. It's—I mean, maybe uh, Townsend is doing that, and they're just basically playing feels the whole time. I mean, that's kind of how the, the feeling. I they got are, is. and yet some. They Somehow it works. Yeah. It, it stays together. It always sounds like at any minute here, this could just totally fall apart. Yeah, I, that's the feeling I'm getting the whole time through the song. But it maintains structure. And yes, a lot of times Pete did hold things down by playing rhythm. His, his whole rhythm lead thing he yeah. did. But he was the one who said, you know, we have a lead singer, a lead guitarist, a lead drummer, and a lead bassist. That, that is so true. And he was right about it. It's so true. They are truly unique. No band like the Who. But for my purpose this time, and I'll probably come back to them again in the future because they're just my favorite rock band ever. <laughs> and d- d- you know, we've talked about that rock, pop, etc. Right. right <laughs> I, they're right. my favorite rock and roll band. So there you go. That's my second favorite thing: John Entwistle's bass playing on the real me. Well, that was crazy. <laughs> I'm going to fast forward one year from 1988, from my first election mm-hmm. to 1989. The songwriter 
of this song. We have talked about, and I believe he has been featured not on his own, but as a lead singer of a supergroup. That is John Hyatt. Aha! And so, since we've already heard from him, I'm going to take it to a new artist that we have not mentioned or talked about yet. Well known as a slide guitarist. Her name is Bonnie Raitt. And the song that I'm going to play for you, my second, quote-unquote, my favorite things. A Thing Called Love. Think about that. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> That's awesome. I don't have too much to say about it. I just this this is um, I chose this version because we'd already talked about John Hyatt, and it's actually from his album "Bring the Family," which is the album that would go on to form Little Village that we've talked about before. Right, yes, with, with Ry and Niccolo and Jim Keltner. But uh, it, so that album came out in 1987. So then two years later, it was released by Bonnie Raitt. Yes, and Bonnie Raitt before this album came out was not known in mainstream circles. Now in the, in the slide blues realm, she was well known, but the general public probably did not know who Bonnie Raitt was before 1989. You don't think so? No, I, I don't I, really know. I'm, I'm, I'm saying they didn't. Yeah. And now she, um, sang 
on uh, sang with Little Feet in the '70s. She sings on the album Dixie Chicken. Really, you'll hear her voice there. Didn't know that. Um, and did a lot of these kinds of things. Um, she would be somebody who, like, similar maybe to a, to like Delbert McClinton before he did his hit. Um, oh, jeez, I hate it when that happens. Delbert McClinton's big hit was "Giving It Up for Your Love." Okay. People didn't know who he was. That was a big hit, even though he was well-respected in smaller music circles and a certain genre or niche. Yes, that's a better word. Um, But then everybody kind of knew who he was and would continue to know. That's what happened here with Bonnie Raitt. She puts out this album that is less blues and more pop in a lot of ways. And it's a great album. She got Don Was to produce it from Was Not Was. Cool. And... Her credibility is spoken to by some of the personnel on the album, including uh, Heartbreaker Scott Thurston, or future Heartbreaker at the time. Oh, he's on this album? Scott Thurston plays on that album. Herbie Hancock is on a song. Uh, Two members of the Fabulous Thunderbirds, Kim Wilson plays his harmonica, and Fran Christina plays drums on a song. And you even get appearances by David Crosby and Graham Nash on backing vocals on a song. That just goes to show you then how she was must have been well-respected among um, other professionals. I would say she was one of those musicians' musicians. Mm-hmm. Really and seems like it. Then this came out. She won three Grammys. This song was a massive, massive hit. And there are several other good songs on this album. It's a good album. I remember very well when it came out. And it was cool for people that had already loved Bonnie Raitt to see her getting that recognition. It gave her some commercial success. And this is an example of a cover that I think is every bit as good as the original. I think it is. And I, I do, I was going to mention that because I think it's improved by her slide playing and that extended solo bit in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, it kind improves. Of the breakdown it. in there. Yeah. And yeah. what I like about the change, because she doesn't markedly change the song other than her style with the slide. Right. But what I like about it is the changing perspective from the man singing it. Right. I ain't no Prince Charming, you know, is, you know, come on, we can try this thing, you know. But she is like, you ain't no Prince Charming. Yeah. Can you handle me, you know, kind of thing. And so it puts this whole new spin on it, and yet it's a faithful cover. I love both versions. I do too. And the song has always amused me, just because from John Hyatt, such weird lines. Oh, yes. No one writes like him. You know, baby, we can choose. You know, we ain't no amoebas. (laughs) You ain't no Queen of Sheba. <laughs> I, I ain't no porcupine. Take off your kid gloves. I, I ain't some icon carved out of soap sent here to clean, clean up, your, up reputation. your reputation. That's a great lyric. It's so John Hyatt. It's weird. I mean, but it works. It works. He He tends to have a unique way of putting things. And when you combine that with his unique way of singing things, right. you get a really distinct production in every way you get you get a lot of sarcasm from his version it seems to me mm-hmm. but then from this version it's more like she's she's angry she's not angry but it's swagger swagger yeah it's, it's exactly. strut exactly it's you know here i am <laughs> and it, it's so perfect for her as she's out there playing that guitar mm-hmm. i mean let's just face it you she's don't think of female guitar players very often. There have been plenty of great ones. There's some great ones out there she's, right now. She's probably the most among the most well known. 
I would say so. A female guitarist, you know, especially I blues so. guitarist I mean, as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you think of Hart. You think of her t- today. I, I um, think of... Um, Susan Tedeschi. I also think of the uh, lead singer from Alabama Shakes. I can't think of her name. Oh, yes. Brittany. Yes, Brittany, um, Brittany. I can't think of her last name, but she's great. Yeah. You know who I'm talking about. Hold on. I have to look up her yeah, name Yeah, because we got to get her name right because she she can play and sing. She's great. Brittany. Brittany Howard. Howard. That's right. Yeah. She plays that wide SG a lot. She's a cool, she's a cool one, but you know, there aren't too many around. Yeah, you just, you don't commonly, commonly think of them, and, and there are a lot of great ones out there, so props to the female guitar players, uh, in this case, Bonnie Raitt, who did a great cover here. I'm so glad you picked that, because that took, that took me back. I, I listened to it from time to time. Oh, that was right in your, when you were... I was 14 years old, man. Right, that's right. <laughs> great it, one. It was, it was a, it was a great time. So that's number two on my list, then. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so, Moving along. Um, the next of my favorite things, one of my favorite things in the music realm to listen to is something that I have slowly begun to educate myself on, but I have a very long way to go. And... I am talking about the one true musical thing that the United States gave to the world. Ah, jazz? And that's jazz. So what I thought I would do is share with you what I would say is, if I'm picking my favorite jazz song, it is going to be this one. And it is from a fellow named Charles Mingus who was a bass player, another bass player, and and band leader. And it is the lead track off of his 1959 album, Mingus Ah-Um. And depending on where you read about it, it's either called Better Get It In Your Soul or Better Get Hit In Your Soul. And sometimes on the same page, it's listed both ways. I've never seen that before. I, I don't know which one is correct. <laughs> I thought the former was. But I, I, I think most of them do say, better get it in your soul. And I think that's what my album, which is a reissue, says. But all over the internet, it's credited as better get hit in your soul. Regardless. <laughs> it's one of those jazz quarks. Yes, yes. What difference does it make? Regardless, it is a a... Somewhat challenging, but also approachable piece of music. Now, understand, this particular album, along with Kind of Blue by Miles Davis, those are my two favorite jazz albums. I know I'm really going out on a limb there, because that is <laughs> generally considered to be two of the best. But I would still consider myself a relative novice. But it is A+, plus, 10 out of 10, 5 out of 5, whatever rating system Always Mingus Aum right there at the top in, in any rating. And I listen to it with, with some regularity. But this lead track is my favorite. And it takes, um, what he's doing is he's trying to get the feel of the gospel and church music he grew up with and putting it into this jazz form. Now, I'm, I'm kind of doing my talk about it before at this time because I, I, I want the information 
I want you to hear the information before you hear the song so that you can hear that. One of my favorite things about it is the shouting that goes along with it. He does a lot of vocalizing, uh, kind of off mic in the background. It's not like singing mm-hmm. a vocal or even scatting that gives it this very exciting feel. Uh, so I like that, but I also like um, this genre because he was he's sort of pioneering it. Okay, this is the the genre would be considered post bop. Now people have probably heard of bebop and um, hard bop. So what Mingus did on this record is fused more experimental jazz and bebop. Um, even some avant-garde concepts and freeform concepts, but tried to mesh them all together and in doing so created the next wave of jazz music for the early 60s, post-bop. So you'll hear that this song has a structure to it. There's a, a certain form that they keep going back to, but then in between it, they'll kind of meander. And it kind of develops a split personality that way, which apparently is something that Mingus was known for, being very mild and also very fiery, Mm -hmm. fiery musicians during sessions. And yet he would keep the same band for 10 years. Uh, He's a fascinating character. But this, uh, for those of you who are not jazz fans or or not familiar with it, uh, give this a listen. Um, I don't necessarily think I would say that it's easy to listen to, but I still think it's approachable because you do get that same theme that keeps coming back. But I find it to be very exciting to listen to. So let's hear it. This is Better Get It In Your Soul, Charles Mingus. Thank you. 
So there you go. What did you think about that, Jacob? Well, I I know I know Chuck Mingus and played a couple of his songs when I was doing jazz band back mm-hmm. in high school and college. Bingo. But <laughs> I just rolled my eyes. But I have not heard this. Okay, good. Uh, I've I've heard you know a few of his songs and I recognize the the sort of howling thing. There's a, a song of his I really like called Moanin. You ever mm-hmm, heard of that? Mm-hmm. He does a lot of screaming in that. Mm-hmm. But I was really taken by your your pre-song introduction and what to expect. Okay. Because I really it really came to life for me. Okay, so on. I want you to tell that, but I was going to say first, if you were expecting a traditional gospel sound, that's not what you got. Right. So, what did you get out of that? Well, it's exactly how you described it to me when when we were listening is that it's not trying to convey a gospel song. It's not a rendition, not a jazz rendition of that. Right. It's actually a telling the story of a church service using the song. Yeah, like a revival or something. Yes, yes. And, and I thought that was such an apt description, bingo, probably, <laughs> uh, using the word apt, but incredible. Really? Yeah, he uses the music to tell the story, and I liked it. I always liked it when I learned that that was the the motivation behind it, and realized that that's what he's doing. It it went to another level. So you heard what I was talking about. The motif or the theme is that. I mean, it does that, and then there's a brief interlude, and then it does it again, and then there's a very lengthy interlude where I would say that the saxophone is playing the part of the preacher. Mm-hmm. And I think so. it works its way back up into this big drum solo. And which, then there's this call and response thing going on too between the trombone, I think, and yeah. the saxophones. Uh-huh. So these things are getting worked back up and then it gets back to the main point of the of the 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 sermon, if you will, and we're back to again. And it just kind of brings it all home. That was awesome. It's it's an incredible piece of music that uh, you know, we've talked about doing a jazz episode. I hope at some point we still will. It'll be a challenge for both of us. It will because it's just. I mean, that's like that's almost like saying let's do a music episode. You know. It's, well, I've probably said this once or twice before, but just how expansive the genre is. It's like you know, both of us have a, a you know. A pretty decent working knowledge of a lot of rock and roll, yeah. and of course that genre is so expansive. We'll never, we'll never hear everything. Yeah, but it's like I feel like it's double or triple that size when you're talking about jazz. Yes, and it is truly its own thing. We can discuss, and there's different kinds of jazz. Okay, there's way, no question. There's way a lot of a lot of different subgenres. We can discuss: is this rock? Is this pop? Is this this? Is this th- jazz? Is just its own separate thing. And all these different uh, styles and ways of doing things, even among single artists. I mean, a Miles, Miles Davis, Davis record from 1950 is not anywhere near the same as a Miles Davis record from 1980. I mean, you just think about the different subtypes. I mean, there's big band stuff, there's swing, bebop, uh, hard bop, you know, different subgenres of jazz, subgenres. Free form. Free form. There's, there's, there's too much going on. And, you know, it's... It's probably, from my perspective, I'm just thinking about it, it's probably easier to record a jazz album because you have these bands that get established, they have a band leader who writes the music, 
writing out charts for musicians, anyone you want to read and then solo over. And so I think it, to me, it seems like it's an easier thing to do. Of course, Miles Davis and Coltrane and Mingus, they just record album after album after mm-hmm. album. It's not the same exact type of thing that you get from a rock It's band. not easy to do. It's easy to put down if you have that vision. That's what, I'm, yeah. that's what I mean. You're right. <laughs> I, know, I know exactly what and, you're saying. And you can write out the chart and have all kinds of musicians come in and form different bands, mm-hmm. and you can just put out album after album as long as you have somebody with that kind of vision. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and there's so many, so many guys like that that we know, and there's so many more that we'll probably never hear of. Yes, and if you ever have the opportunity, even to to listen to even a moderately decent jazz combo, maybe it's just a drummer, a bassist, and a piano player, or a drummer, a bassist, and a guitar player, or a saxophone player, at any given place where they can do it even reasonably well. What really makes it work is the way the musicians play off of each other Absolutely. and feel off of each other. It's, a, it's really an incredible thing to see. You know, when, when we play rock music, pop music, country music, or whatever, there's a chord structure. And there's some jazz that there's chord structures in. But we know the song is going here, so we're playing what goes along with that. With jazz, especially of this type, you have a lot of improvisation that everybody has to be able to keep up with what the lead player at the moment is doing and hold it all together. And that comes from feel and experience with playing with those people such that sometimes there's no definite key or chord structure at all. But if you can follow one another, yes. and, and most importantly, you can improvise, then you'll make it. And every take that you may do, is it's never going to be the same. You're gonna get you're gonna get a different song every time. Uh, I don't know any any uh, any chart you want that has an extended solo section like this one. Mm-hmm. If Mingus and his band go out and they do this, you know this chart, the audience from city to city will never hear the same version. Yes, and that that's just so different in a lot. In, well, not in every way, but in a lot of ways from rock. Yeah, I mean you get. You get different solos every time somebody plays. You know, they'll improvise a, a solo. But that's always over a chord structure. Yes. You know, uh, or almost always. But anyway, uh, enough of enough of that. Um, this was Better Get It In Your Soul, the lead track from Charles Mingus's 1959 album. Again, 1959. That piece of music was recorded in 59. That's, it's pretty weird when you when you put it like that. The same year that Miles Davis released Kind of Blue and Dave Brubeck released Take Five. Three of the most important jazz albums all come out in 1959. And that was one of my third favorite thing, Better Get It In Your Soul by Charles Mingus. That was, I have to say, just an incredible section. Very memorable already, that one. I hope you. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you liked it, and uh, are half as taken with it as as I am. And if, as I am. If it wasn't your thing, we'll move on to something else. <laughs> well, we we will because I'm going to go back into the Seth's mainstream. Okay, good. This is from 1970. It was written by Graham Nash, and recorded by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young from their album Deja Vu. It is an ode to countercultural domestic bliss. <laughs> This is a song called Our House. <laughs> <laughs> 
which is a very, very, very fine house, by the way. With two cats in the yard? Life used to be so hard. And now? Everything is easy because of you. All right. I'll light the fire. You place the flowers in the vase that you bought today. Staring at the fire for hours and hours while I listen to you play your love songs. I love that song. <clears throat> that is quite literally everything that makes Crosby, Stills, and Nash so great. <laughs> and Young. Yes, although he doesn't appear on this song. No, he doesn't. Um, you, There's no guitars on this song. Well, the bass guitar. But it's just bass drums and Graham Nash playing a piano and harpsichord. Yep, that's it. I, I They play this song a lot on... what? What is... The, I can't think of the name. The Sirius Station... That's not Yacht Rock. The Bridge. The Bridge. They uh-huh. play this song a lot yeah. on The Bridge. But I love it because it's just a, a perfectly nice little song. Yes. Baroque pop, as it's as the Wikipedia article says. Yes. And, of course, written on uh, based on real-life events. Mundane 
events. I'm going to read you what Graham Nash said about it. This is an interview from 2013, and I'm going to paraphrase some of it, but he was living with Joni Mitchell in Laurel Canyon. Here's what he says about it. Well, it's an ordinary moment. Oh, he was on he was on NPR's Fresh Air program. He says, it's an ordinary moment. What happened is, is that Joni and I, we went to a place on Ventura Boulevard called Arts Deli, a very famous deli. We had just been to breakfast there. We're going to get into Joan's car, and we pass an antique store. And we're looking at it. Um, and we're looking in the window, and she saw a very, very beautiful vase that she wanted to buy. I persuaded her to buy this vase. It wasn't very expensive, and we took it home. It was a very gray, kind of sleety, drizzly L.A. morning. And we got to the house, and I, we got through the front door, and I said, You know what? I'll light a fire. Why don't you put some flowers in that vase that you just bought? Well, she was in the garden getting flowers, and that meant she was not at her piano, but I was. <laughs> and an hour later, our house was born out of an incredibly ordinary moment that many, many people have experienced. I just think that's so nice. It's great, and I'm pretty sure that Graham Nash tells that story on that documentary that I've mentioned before, Echo in the Canyon. Oh, really? That is about the Laurel Canyon music scene. I'm pretty sure he tells that story on there um, because that that would fit along with that time. I I don't know what else to say. And as as I said earlier, all will be revealed, but this is song number three on quote-unquote my favorite things and you know it's just a perfect little song about a perfect moment that surely everybody has experienced if they you know in a relationship or they have a spouse or whatever it's just a perfectly nice moment that you can have with someone you love and he puts down he puts that down in song in a matter of an an hour hour or so Mm -hmm. and that little day that would have just been forgotten and lost is being relived by people even now, 50 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what music can do for you. Yeah, very cool. That was my third, so... Great. Is this going to be your fourth? My, my fourth, fourth one. I still need I still need you to give me that abacus. Yes, we still need that. Bingo. And so... <laughs> <laughs> the way you just said bingo is how um, the Pat Finnerty channel, he goes, he talks about something that's musical theory, and then he says, but yeah, Oh, yes, Beato. <laughs> and he goes to the minor third, Beato. <laughs> he goes right back to the tonic, Beato. Nobody knows what we're talking about except Joel. <laughs> Sorry. No, but it is funny. Yes. Please, please. Uh, um, so one of the biggest moments in music in a very long time <laughs> has happened within the last month. And it is one of the major events and important happenings in the life of this band, even though they broke up 50 years ago. Uh, sounds like we're going to have two Beatles uh, songs Uh-oh. on this episode today. <laughs> here we go. What are we doing here? We both got favorite things, and we uh, dare... Will there be overlap in a general and broad episode such as this? yes, it sounds like there will be. You're (laughs) talking about the Beatles. I am talking about the Beatles and the Get Back show, and there's so many things. I'm sure we will talk whether... We need to do an episode An episode or in in part, it will be discussed because I'm going to be watching, re-watching, and talking about the Get Back 
uh, Peter I, Jackson I am, uh, film for years. I am so glad that you brought it up because we I, I did want to mention it in some way, and I just have to say how incredible. I was saying to Josh when he and I watched the third part of it together, mm-hmm. this is the biggest Beatle event of my entire life. It is. And it is. how momentous an occasion for me and you and all the Beatles fans around the world. It is the biggest Beatles moment in my life since Anthology. Right, you now, had the Anthology. I did, when that happened and was on TV and the release of Free as a Bird and Real World for the first time. But in importance and scope, Get Back is, is more important. And it is a bigger deal um, for Beatles fans. It's it's perhaps not the cultural watershed that bringing them back 25 years later was with Anthology. Especially doing those two new songs. Yes. But people are not, I don't think, consistently revisiting Anthology among Beatles fans. There was not a lot of new information in Anthology. It was great. It was fun to have those It's fun to have, yes. And I do visit them from time to yes. time. Yes, but how long has it been since you've watched the, oh, the films oh years and years, years and years there's just mm-hmm. no need yeah how long how long will we be re-watching get oh, back there is so much to see endlessly it's not interviews that's no, the there's, thing there's there's no narration no there's no interview it's just here see it happen yeah the only device for 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 plot and information is just that calendar thing it just tells you what day yeah it what is. day it is and you have to see what's happening and let the story unfold before you and even if you're not already familiar with it somehow he tells that story so i don't want to get off too far into that there are so many things that that i would 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 cite as being as being critical i'll just mention that the main thing is seeing the songs develop from where they started to where they end up on that famous rooftop concert at the end and and getting to be in the room with them yes. as they as they just goof off and then come mm-hmm. up with the songs that we all know and yes, love. Yes, and then all of a sudden it ends up, and and there you go. So w- my fourth favorite thing um, is, if pressed, my favorite Beatles song. And it is one that we saw take shape and get played in this documentary. And this is John Lennon's Don't Let Me Down.
so glad that you brought this up <clears throat> what I, I i don't know there's a lot of things that i like about don't let me down i but I, in in this particular context as you see them develop the song <clears throat> excuse me see them develop the song and each come up with their parts and how it's like then once they play it on the roof it's like it's just magically there and it's perfect and everybody has their parts and you know is doing the things that they do best Ringo's got his unique drumming he's he's keeping it all together Paul's bass is fantastic John's rhythm holds it all down and George has some great guitar work and there's Billy Preston back there great doing stuff his thing. in there I think what I really like about it is you know by this point John is spending a lot of time um and and will continue basically for the rest of his life to um, to sing for Yoko in many 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 different ways. Sometimes more successfully than other. Sometimes in just raw fits of emotion that aren't always the most musical things in the world. Um, sometimes that are frankly kind of silly. Sometimes they're just him saying her name over and over. Dear Yoko. <laughs> Which some of those little ditties are fine, like Dear Yoko or Oh Yoko, both of those. They're fine. But when it comes to conveying the pure desperation of, of depth of emotion, I don't think he ever did better than this song. It's just, he, he says, don't let me down, and he means it. And you can tell every time he sings it, he means it. I mean, it. she's right there the whole time. 
and she pretty much becomes his singular muse. Yes. From then on, yes. really. May pang for a year and a half, but other than that. And some songs... Actually, that, even then. <laughs> yeah. I. It's incredible what you described about hearing the ver- hearing them go from John's just writing it, playing it a little bit, to the rooftop. And in the third episode, Paul even says, you know what? We do our best work when our back is against the wall. When it comes time for us to show up and, and, and perform, we do it. And that was the most incredible thing to have that. Basically, the way that Peter Jackson was doing the, the storytelling, how it foreshadowed that moment. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, even though it was edited down to nine hours from countless... Edited down to nine hours. Yes, folks, that's what he said. Yes. <laughs> and I want to see more. I hope well, we get it. His, you know, Peter Jackson's original edit was 18 hours. Yeah, that's what... I wish we could get that. I hope we will. A director's day. cut of 18 hours. I will be there. Every Beatles fan will purchase it. I will be there. <laughs> but he couldn't have cut out much. I'm not, you know, surely there wasn't like hours and hours more of them rehearsing that song. I mean, the way the story was told, they showed up on the roof and they played it. Yeah. It was incredible. Incredible. And even when they weren't perfect on the roof, I mean, one time when they sing Don't Let Me Down, John flubs the lyrics, mm-hmm. um, and and it's they laugh. I mean... And, and that's the thing when they're playing, and that's what's great about it. Even in the difficulties, the business problems, the uncertainties, the growing apart, the wives, all this stuff, when they get on that roof and they're playing together, it's just nothing like, else it, matters. It's just like 64 again. It's just the four of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, for that matter, it's just like 60 yep. in Hamburg, yeah. which they talk about a lot. They talk about a lot. Which was amazing was to me. That was incredible, too. But... And I, I this I just think that that this is if I had to say what's my favorite Beatles song, it's probably this one. So my that's, fourth that's favorite thing is Don't Let Me Down by the Beatles. That's crazy. You know, as much as and what we've known each other for what, how long? Over ten years now, or around ten years. And we bonded a long time ago with our supreme interest in the Beatles, more than a lot of people. You and Sarah. Yeah. Well, Bingo. no, no. I'm talking about me and you. Oh, me and you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, me, I got me, a text. I wasn't paying attention. You were being nice, and I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> me, me and Sarah did as well, but okay, I'm talking about me, me and okay. you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Bruh. I'm so sorry. I'm trying to be nice. I know, and you're and having a moment. you're not even paying attention. You're having a moment, and, no. I, and I got a text. I'm sorry. No, all I was going to say was that we have... Known, I've known you for over 10 years, and mm-hmm. we talked about the Beatles so much. Right. I just don't recall you saying that Don't Let Me Down is, when pressed, maybe your favorite. Well. Maybe I'm just not remembering that. So, but, my, my but general... But, I mean, I think it's a great choice. Yeah, my, my general thing is, okay, my five favorite Beatles songs. Back in the USSR, Dear Prudence, Ticket to Ride, uh, Paperback Writer, and Don't Let Me Down. All for different reasons. Those are my five favorites. Um, and even though George is my favorite Beatle, there's not a George song in there. But regardless, that's just how it works sometimes. Those are uh, there are facets of all of those that I mean. Paperback Writer is not one of the greatest songs they did, but it's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think this one's both. It's one of the greatest songs they did, and one of my favorites. So, 
that's that's kind of where I where I stand on that. And then my next five and my top ten kind of change from time to time. But that sounds like a different show. You know, we need to do that because I don't know if I could even give you my top five favorite. You know, let's make that an episode. We haven't done one over the Beatles in a long time. Well, I just gave mine. <laughs> that, you did, didn't you? Huh. I totally missed that. Before you, before we go on to my fourth, we're talking heavily about the documentary Get Back. It is available for free if you subscribe to the Disney Plus uh, streaming service, and so many people are subscribers to that. Yeah, and it's all available, so if you want to sign up for the trial and watch it and cancel, you can do that. You can, <laughs> but I urge, I've been telling a lot of people about it, even people who sure. are only cursory fans, because if you like the Beatles music, you're going to have fun watching them mm-hmm. just play the music and see it in the studio, right. I feel like. So, um my friend and very faithful podcast listener, Alan, um, has been watching it with, with his wife. And oh, really? That's awesome. Yes. And, of course, he, he is a Beatles fan, and so he's enjoying that part of it. She would not be one who would be considered a big Beatles fan. She's familiar with the stuff, you know, probably on the one album or whatever. As so many are. Yeah. But she has been fascinated by it just from the, cre- the study of the creative process. And just fascinated by watching how these things develop. Some of these songs she knows, some of them she doesn't, but it doesn't matter to her. She is fascinated by the way they write and how we're, we're in essence, seeing a video in the room where Michelangelo created the Sistine Chapel or, you know, Da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa or, or whatever. It's just that That's this is awesome. the Beatles yeah. creating songs, and we get to see it. And so it has a definite uh, appeal to big Beatles fans, but it's got a general appeal, too, for people who are fascinated by creative genius and want to see it at work, that and would, you see it at work. It, that, w- that was the biggest takeaway for me, was seeing the Beatles as living, breathing, real human individuals. And Very human. Yes. I would say. Yes. I think it would be really cool, Josh, to get their perspective, actually, if we end up discussing the, the, the documentary in some way. It would be cool to get their perspective as not really serious Beatles fans and hear what they had to say about it. I think it would be fun, um, as we're brainstorming live, I think it would be fun to, to find some people, different people, who have watched it. Someone like her. Um, another big fan, another casual fan, um, someone who, you know, different, different kinds. I think that would be fascinating. I think that would be really good. Well, I think we've got ourselves a situation going. We'll have to do some legwork on that. If you would like to comment on the Beatles get back and be on the program, please let us know. We would like to have you. Yeah. We're putting out a call right now, a call to arms. So if you've plowed through this many of our favorite things and are still listening, drop us a line. Yes, indeed. <laughs> All right. So that was my fourth favorite thing. My, my be- <laughs> the Beatles song, Don't Let Me Down. Well, I'm going to move on to my fourth selection of, quote unquote, my favorite things. My second selection was a female vocalist slash musician, and so too will be my fourth an album from 2018 from a very local a local girl who is now one of the biggest artists and is starting to transcend the country thing just like T-Swift before her. 
her name is Casey Musgraves, who grew up in Mineola, I believe. And she's a very good songwriter, and I really appreciate her music. And the song I'm going to play for you is from her, excuse me, The song I'm going to play is from her 2018 album, Golden Hour, and it's called Rainbow. When it rains, it pours, but you didn't even notice it ain't said at the beginning of the episode, I wanted to use this list to, with one notable exception, the Beatles, as I already said. The other four are kind of new stuff I'm into or people we hadn't talked about, but this is both because I I like this album a lot, and I chose this particular song for a reason, which will be revealed later, but (laughs) as a representative, you know, this is pretty representative of the album, but... It's cool, and I appreciate it, because all of the, the 13 songs that on this um, this record are written or co-written by her. And this particular one is memorable to her because it's the last song that her grandmother heard her sing, a, a song she wrote before she died. Um, oh, it, wow. it was written actually six years before the album came out, and it just I guess it didn't make it on any of her recordings until this one. But there's a lot of other good songs like High Horse and Space Cowboy. And the opening track, Slow Burn, is a particularly memorable one for me. But this kind of represents a bit of a change in sound for her from the more straight um, country sound to 
different techno elements and disco elements and and pop and just all kinds of things. So, and the fact that she's from East Texas as well is pretty yeah. cool. I think she has 10 or 15 million monthly listeners on Spotify, so she's a really big artist right now. She was also, this is kind of a weird fact, but the first time we went to see Jackie Green was 2012 or 13, Sons of Herman Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opener for Jackie Green was Rustin Kelly, which was somebody that she was actually uh, married to at one point. Oh, really? And that was kind of random when I when I saw the name Rustin Kelly. I didn't I didn't even remember we, that there was an opening act. Well, we remember because I think we bought a CD of his that he signed. Oh, <laughs> just to, I don't know where it is. Jacob and his his uh, uh, constant search for opening acts that he likes. It's a good practice. Well, you know, a, a lot of great music that we've discovered have been openers yes, yes. for me Dawes before ELO or Cordova's before mm-hmm. Jackie Green the, set, mm-hmm. the third time we saw him so openers are important yeah they, but they, they get the job done anyway Casey Musgraves for you if you don't know who she is check her out she's a great singer and songwriter I, I think you have introduced the introspective portion of this program so I'll continue it with my fifth favorite thing and given the time of year thanksgiving christmas holidays um it's a a good time for a little bit of sentimentality so i'll get a little sappy a little sentimental and play a a song for you by someone whom i have cited as one of my favorite singers and this is a, a song with a special meaning for me. It is Al Jarreau from his 1981, yes, 1981 album, one of my favorites, Breaking Away. Very sentimental song called My Old Friend.
So part of the sentimentality for this song, indeed this album, comes from nostalgia. Uh, This album came out when I was six years old, and I heard it throughout my childhood being played fairly regularly. And so it takes me back to being a child when I hear any of the songs on this album, although my primary love for this album is just the quality of the music and how much I love it. There is a nostalgia element. It's a very top album. Very good. I, I, uh, this is a bingo, but pop sensibility. uh, No, but it does have that. But, but this, uh, this is definitely a top 10 album, maybe a top five for me. Ooh. So, you know, bingo. Interesting that you say, I adore this record top to bottom. So part of it, yes, is that that uh, nostalgia factor. Uh, the musicianship, the genre, uh, so many different things. But for, for this song, it is a song that, that speaks of uh, friendships and very close friendships. Long-lasting ones. That are long-lasting. I can recall those warm summer days, no decisions, child's play. Did they slip away? Gone forever, lost to yesterday. As I walk down streets full of amber leaves, I see nothing's really changed at all. We're just older now, still together after all these years. From the beginning, you've been always there, my old friend. True until the end of time. So, all of you have a person or people that you've known since you were young. Now, maybe it's not a little child, maybe it's from your teen years, um, but we all know people like that. Mm -hmm. I feel uh, very uh, blessed and fortunate to to think of multiple people when I hear this song, and that it makes me reflect, especially as I begin to get older. Again, I said, we're going to get to the sappy part, so we're there. <laughs> the sappy sentimentality is here. But given the, the season and and that sort of thing, these, these feelings of reflection as you begin to get a little bit older, walking down streets full of amber leaves and realizing that you're getting older, and you can look around in your life and see a person or persons who, when you go back to those warm summer days of child's play were there. Um, I, I won't embarrass people by saying their names. Obviously, my wife would be one of them because we started dating when we were in high school. I was 16 years old. Huh. Okay, Me and my wife, too. Yes. We were um, 13, yeah. 12. Yeah. So um, whether it's for you know 15 years like y'all, or for 30 years like us, as it keeps going, that just becomes more and more meaningful uh, with each passing day. So that's an obvious application. Uh, But there's one or two other people I think of that just suffice it to say um, have been dear friends literally since childhood Mm -hmm. that still are 
And when I hear these lyrics still together after all these years, we're just older now. Nothing's really changed at all. Still together after all these years. You've always been there, my old friend. You know who you are. Thank you. This song puts me in mind of those people and those relationships, the things uh, that are near the top of the list for things I'm most thankful for this time of the year. So my fifth favorite thing is to be sentimental and sappy with Al Jarreau and think about I, my old friends. I like it. You know, in, in the, the first verse, you know, no decisions, child's play. Did they slip away? Gone forever? Lost yesterday? Well, it turns out it was not true. Yeah. Because you realize nothing has changed. You know, we're still friends after all these years. It's really nice. And, and the it's trifles, really a nice song. The trifles from back in that time <clears throat> that didn't really mean anything today mean a whole lot to you. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can think of, of just little scenes with, with people, mm-hmm. maybe from when you were in third or fourth grade or junior high or high school or even young adulthood that you'll think of and reflect on and even see them in those people as you're into your 40s, like I am, or people who are older in their 50s, 60s, 70s. This only becomes dearer and and closer to heart. So um, I, I I just think it's it's a, a wonderful song that that gives me a it lot really of emotion is. every time I hear it. Do you know who wrote it? Yeah, not Al Jarreau. Not Al Jarreau. The writers are Steve George, John Lang, and Richard Page, whom you may know as two of the band members from Mr. Mister, and Richard Page's cousin is John Lang. These are the guys that wrote Take These Broken Wings and Learn to Fly Again, Learn to Live So Free. What? This is the guys from Mr. Mister that wrote My Old Friend that was recorded by Al Jarreau. And we've talked about the people who appear on this album with yeah, Jay uh, Graydon being the major one. Yes, Jay Graydon. But you get a lot of these guys: Steve Gadd, the drummer uh, on most of the tracks, we've but also Jeff Porcaro. Talked um, about him too. Michael Omardian or Omartian, however you say his name, who is in keys over all sorts of things. Um, Steve Lukather playing guitar. Guitar. Uh, Dean Parks playing guitar. Yep. The list just goes on and on. But it was the Mr. Mr. guys who wrote the song and who are singing backing vocals on this album, including on this song. It's, you know, it's an album of all-stars, really. And it's really just a nice, awesome, really fine album. And one that I'm lucky to have on vinyl. I listen to it. It actually comes up a lot on, especially when I was listening to records more, I seem to pull this one out a lot. Yeah, I do the same. I do the same thing. And... If you really want to know what the early 80s were like, all you got to do is look at that cover. Because he's you, wearing a the pink, pink polo, the pink polo with a white shirt and a khaki jacket with the sleeves pushed up. Yes, children, they really did dress that way. <laughs> and it, it, I have to say, it was Josh who introduced me to Al Jarreau, And we've probably told the story before about getting a call from Sarah. And <laughs> yes. I was eating at Chick-fil-A and she asked me what I'm wearing. Do I want to go to a concert? <laughs> And it turned out it was Al Jarreau. I'd never heard of him. But that was one of the first concerts I'd probably been to. Now, I didn't go to too many concerts That, I guess, technically, technically would be pre-dating. It was. Um, pre-dating dating? Yes, it was pre-dating dating. Of course, <laughs> D- Jacob was uh, very hopeful that some pre-dating would turn into some dating. And I'm sure taken quite aback when he gets a call from this girl and she says, What are you wearing? That... <laughs> 
that's such a weird thing to hear you tell that story. So anyway, for the record, and Jacob I, said nothing. No, I don't mean nothing. Again, it's weird to hear you tell this. Anyway, I'm sorry. I had to. I, I got too serious there for a little while. Yeah, feeling a little emotional, so I had to make a little joke. Well, yeah, as Josh did get a little misty-eyed with this song. I have to say, I was the first person to be sentimental as I brought up Our House, which is a, a very nice song, which makes me very, um, you know, emotional sometimes just thinking about me and Miss King, you know. Sure. So, yeah. All right. Surprising emotions from this episode. Uh, hey, it's the time. It's a good time for it that. It is. Let me, let me end with uh, a rocker. And Josh already said the name of the song, one of his favorite Beatles songs. Actually, two of them. He um, he picked Paperback Rider, and he picked Back in the USSR. And I actually was going to pick either of these songs. I chose Back in the USSR. Let's hear it from their album The Beatles, which is known to all of us today as the White Album. Keep your comrade warm. <laughs> okay, if pressed, this is my favorite Beatles song. <laughs> this was a, a song by the Threedles, Paul McCartney on drums. Yes. 
But I have to say, this just shows the Beatles for what they are. They were just secret communists <laughs> with their with their happy portrayal of the USSR after the Warsaw Pact invaded Czechoslovakia. This is a very controversial song back in the day. There's absolutely nothing controversial about an obvious joke, but yet some <laughs> no, people... No, it was. It w- uh, both sides of the spectrum got on to him for it. But I think it's awesome. It, it is awesome. It is brilliant. It is, and it, it really showcases one of my favorite things about the of my many favorite things about the Beatles, and that's the sense of humor Absolutely. Uh, about it. I mean, hey, I I gave some sentimentality that's potentially vomit-inducing, and then you play a song that features vomiting at the beginning of it. Indeed, so- and the paper bag was on his knee <laughs> while he came home via the uh, flew to Miami Beach via Man, the British Overseas Air Charter. <laughs> I just love the, they were having fun, you mm-hmm. know, parodying Chuck Berry and the, and Beach, the Beach Boys. Boys, yeah. But it's awesome. Let me hear your balalakas ringing out. <laughs> hey, come and keep your comrade warm. <laughs> you don't know how lucky you are, boy. Yeah, well, back in the USSR. Um, I, I wonder, you know, how long it will be, because people continue to go back to the Beatles, obviously, you know, get back documentary and... You know, 30 years after they broke up, they had a number one album called One, and they continue to have albums. I mean, every time they re-release a package, those it's, albums go a, to number one. Just There's like a remaster be, just, you know. or a remix yeah. or something new or so, something different. People keep coming back to them. I just wonder how long it will be before people come back to the White Album and don't know what the USSR is. That is an interesting <laughs> point, isn't it? I mean, I guess if you look at the lyrics, you can you can guess. I mean, it talks about Moscow and Ukraine and Georgia, even though that's potentially confusing, I guess. But then it talks about Miami Beach, so I don't know. That is interesting. Uh, it's just it's just a, a funny thought of of a time frame when, I mean, I don't know. I guess this would have been like sometime in the last 20 years if someone released a song singing about how great it was to be back in Afghanistan. You know, you know, or or hey, it's 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 a it's a great day here in Iraq. You know, well, stuff yeah, like that. because it was it was relevant at the time yes. a lot. Yes, you know, and uh, that's kind of funny because I still see. I remember in school even seeing old atlases and and textbooks that would have maps with the USSR in them still. Mm-hmm. That's how old they were. And so for my generation, of course, even though I'm after the Beatles, um, the Beatles were my parents' generation, but. I still grew up during the Cold War. Yeah, the Soviet Union continued yeah. on and you we, know, until you were an adult. We were part of the last group of kids. We were the Cold War kids. Through, through the 80s that we were still doing bombing drills. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in case we get bombed, getting under Unless your desk. The and Reds your, push the button down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm... I'm sitting down underneath my desk with my head between my legs going, yeah, this is really going to help if the Ruskies come for us. (laughs) The Reds dropped the big one. Gladly, gladly they never did. No, they did not. Um, But that, yeah, I love, I love that. The connections uh, written in India, uh, Mike, Mike Love being part of the suggestion of, well, you know, what if we, what if y'all sang about the California girls on the, like we did, only you put the girls from that side of the world in, oh yeah, the Ukraine girls knocked me out. <laughs> they leave, the, leave West the West behind, behind you know. <laughs> dope, dope, dope. It's just, it's, it's great, 
great stuff. It's fun and funny. It rocks and uh, get you a hold of that surround sound mix of the White Album. Oh, that's pretty awesome. And listen to that plane flying around the room while they're playing. <laughs> it's a lot and of fun. And fly into their prudence. <laughs> it's awesome. All well, right. What do you think about that? I, Tell me your selections. I think that was uh, just uh, an extraordinary amount of fun. It's good to be back in the studio with Jacob. It is indeed. For 2021, my favorite things are the sound of the Rickenbacker guitar, as you heard on Hard Candy by Counting Crows, the bass performance of John Entwistle in The Real Me by The Who, the post-bop jazz stylings of Charles Mingus, Better Get It In Your Soul, my favorite Beatles, Don't Let Me Down, and my favorite, what I've entitled, Sentimental Crap on my list. A sentimental Journey section? My favorite sentimental song, which sums up my feelings on this holiday season for Old Friends, My Old Friend by Al Jarreau. Well, that is so nice of you to 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 have a you know open faced interpretation of my favorite things. Well, I've been hinting throughout the whole episode something is coming. Yes, you have. And I have been distancing myself from saying that these are my favorite things by giving you, quote-unquote, my favorite things. Well, here's the big reveal. I'm ready. Let me give you the tracks in the order that I played them. Okay. Now, I've heard you say that. All will be revealed. All will be revealed. But I have not actively tried to figure it out. So you're going to read the tracks, and I'm going to think. Okay, so here is the order that I played them. Copperhead Road by Steve Earle. Thing Called Love, Bonnie Raitt. Our House by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young-ish. And then I played Rainbow by Casey Musgraves. And then I played Back in the USSR by The Threedles. So. I got nothing. Okay, well, I'll give them to you in a different order. Okay. For my Raindrops on Roses song... Oh, no. I chose Rainbow. <laughs> For my Whiskers on Kittens episode, uh, song, I chose, chose Our, our house. house. For my Copperhead, for my Copper, <laughs> war, my Bright Copper, copper Kettles, <laughs> I chose Copperhead Road. For my Warm Woolen Mittens, I chose Thing Called Love because of those kid gloves. <laughs> and then for my Brown Paper Packages... <laughs> It was a bit of a reach. It was a bit of a reach. But I chose back in the USSR. You the vomit sack. <laughs> it was either that or the book, the paperback writer. Oh, man. What do you think about That's that? That's great. <laughs> it's right there in front of me, and I never thought of it. You, you tried mixing up the songs to throw me off the scent, but I got to admit, if you had played them in order, I would not have figured it well, out. Well, <laughs> actually, I didn't put them, I didn't put them in a weird order on purpose uh, to okay. throw you off. I just wanted to do. I basically thought about it like, man, woman, man, woman, man is how uh, I. Uh huh. But so, I, I can't. I can't take full credit for that. That's so great. I thought of it. I thought of it last night, and I told Sarah about it. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I don't know if I can be if I'd be able to do that or not. And then Sarah helped me uh, with a couple of them. She came in in the clutch when I was talking about what about warm woolen mittens, 
right then she said, what about the kid gloves and a thing called love? <laughs> Babe, that's it. Oh, that's awesome. So I had fun with that. And you, you had a great list, and I had a great list. I yes, think. I think it was. I think it was great at two totally different things, in ways of approaching it. But that's that's pretty great. I'm going to have to admit it. <laughs> that was that was quite delightful, sir. Well, there you have it. Ten really crazy song choices. But a way to end the year with some of our favorite things, and in ending the year. This is our first full calendar year. It sure is. Uh, we passed a year anniversary um, just last month, but we've got a full calendar year of episodes, and I hope, barring anything stopping us, we will have another full year coming at you in I don't see why not. 2022. That's certainly our plan. So come back and join us then. Until then, have it's a not- great Christmas and New Year. And I hope the same Everybody uh, can enjoy the, the time they'll get to spend with friends and family, just like we will. Have a good time in your house with and your old it's friend. it's a very, very, very fine house. <laughs> with your old friends. <laughs> but don't go to the USSR. No, no, don't, don't do that. But anyway, signing off for the year 2021, I am Jacob. Bye, folks. I'm Josh. And this is Somebody, Somebody Else's, Else's Favorite, Favorite Songs. Thank you.